0: Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we meld with the finest minds in networking. Tonight, we are talking to Steve Crocker about the history of the Request request for Comments series, which are the standards that describe the way the protocols work that run the Internet. So sit back, relax, grab a pile of cookies, that's just for Yvonne, by the way, and join us as we rummage around in the History of Networking. (music) Donald. You got frogs bouncing on your head tonight, man.
1: It's the way it's supposed to be, I think.
0: I think so. All right. Tonight, our guest is Steve, who is sitting over here waiting patiently to tell us about his rummaging around in the attic of the history of networking. So... (laughs) He went upstairs today, and he opened a big chest, and it was all this history in there. So he's going to tell us about it. (laughs) So, Steve, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your history in the networking world, and then we'll move into probably pretty naturally the history of the Request for Comment series, or what everybody knows as RFCs.
1: Well, great. It's great to be with you. Um, First of all, just a, a quick word that you've caught me on a day when I had a little bit of uh, maintenance work on my nose. And so uh, age and California sunshine from years ago have all caught up with me. So um, uh, just think of me as Jimmy Durante or something. Uh, and and uh, I am uh, dredging around in history a lot these, uh, these days, looking back on events. Uh, 50 years ago, my goodness, when um, the ARPANET started up. But let me go back even a bit further. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, although during high school years, uh, I had a kind of chaotic uh, situation and bounced back and forth between Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and, uh, and Los Angeles, and sort of alternating years in high school. So um, ninth grade in one place, 10th grade in the other, and sort of back and forth. And so it turned out that my first exposure to computers was at Northwestern University in Evanston. They had a IBM 650, (coughs) excuse me, one of the uh, first commercial computers, and a drum memory. um, Oh my goodness. Wow. uh, It it was slow by any standard, but it was uh, one of the first mass-produced computers, and prior to that, they were mostly one-of-a-kind, hand-built things. Um, I I got pretty excited uh, that the idea that you could write a finite uh, set of instructions and do an unbounded amount of work really grabbed my attention. A short time after I got introduced there, I found myself back in Los Angeles uh, at Van Nuys High School. And I'd been at Van Nuys a, a, a year or so before and had become friends with uh, a guy named Vince Surf. So I was uh, back in Los Angeles. We were back with you. Know, I had a very good friend in Evanston as well, a guy named Bob Axelrod, who became quite well known in um, political science, applying math to compute, to political science things. And um, I introduced him to the 650, to the, the, to the machine at Northwestern. He did a uh, a high school project for what was then the Westinghouse um, Science Talent the Talent Search, which is now run by Intel, got into the top forty, doing uh, simulation of evolution of organisms running around a, a little checkerboard uh, world of poisons and um, and food.
0: Is this similar to the game of life? Is that what this is that you're talking about, or is this? No, pre- it was
1: it was more. Um, um, I guess there's similarity, but it was more uh, uh, testing out some ideas on uh, simulating evolution. And um, he he became famous uh, um, some years ago for uh, exploring uh, iterated prisoner's dilemmas uh, games and wrote, uh, set up a a tournament for different algorithms and uh, Evolution of Cooperation was the book that came out of that, Uh, smart guy. Anyway, back at, uh, back at UCLA, I had this other smart guy friend, um, Vint, and uh, I was a very enamored of computers, so I hot-footed it over to UCLA. I mean, in those days, if you wanted to find a computer, you went to a university. Um, they, weren't, they weren't at your local stores. They weren't in your high schools, and they definitely weren't in your bedroom. Um, and um, uh, the professors at UCLA were, were nice to me, and they let me hang around <laughs> um, which I did, like, like a lost
0: puppy dog,
1: <laughs> like a lost puppy dog, and I, I did my I did my level best to to um, to look like a lost puppy dog. Sometimes they bawled me out like uh, like an errant puppy dog, um, <laughs> and I tried not to be too obnoxious. Uh, and um, I got access actually to a couple of different machines at UCLA. Uh, one of which was a very old machine, it was a one-of-a-kind, hand-built machine called the Standards Western Automatic Computer, or SWAC. It had uh, Williams tube memory. Um, it had a uh, whole 256 words of high-speed memory uh, that were implemented in Williams tubes. And uh, the, the the bank of Williams tubes filled up uh, almost the whole room, and you could see the bits on the screens of these different, uh, different tubes. Um, but there was um, there was some IBM equipment in another place, and there was a Bendix G fifteen, which was another drum computer that was uh, accessible. Um, so, so for those, those of us who may not know, what is a drum memory? A drum memory. A good question. a uh, drum memory is a uh, a, a cylinder. Um, I don't know how big they are because I never got to look inside. But you know, let's say they're about this big, and they and they around. And information is recorded um, in, uh, man- by, by magnetism around the, around the uh, drum. And they're in tracks. And so you, you position—you have a head positioned along these tracks, and then you read as, this, as it goes around. So you have to wait for it to come around to, to get to where you want. Uh, it's mechanical. That's not uh, at electronic speeds. But then it, you, you read it off of that, just like reading a tape. Um, except except that it's a hard surface. Yeah,
0: and that's, yeah it's magnetic and it's actually read write. There were actually read only versions of drum memory as well that were optical. That's just like trivia, totally trivia.
1: Thank nobody you. Wants. Yes, yes <laughs> indeed. These are definitely, definitely read write. Um, <laughs> And, and the IBM 650 had, I think, 2,000 words of memory. And, and notice I'm not using words like K or G or anything like that. These, these are, you count them one at a time. Um, and the Bendix G15 had roughly comparable amounts of memory. Um, and one very memorable situation was um, Vint and I had been working on some uh, mathematical equations. Uh, we were math geeks, among other things, in, the, uh, in high school. And I decided that I wanted to explore these equations by having the computer compute a whole bunch of uh, different values and print them out. And uh, we, we, uh, we, we decided that we'd spend a Saturday working on the machine because we knew that nobody else would be using it in those days. We got to UCLA. I'd been given permission to use the machine, but I hadn't been given any kind of uh, uh, credentials or keys or anything like that. We get to, the, to UCLA and the, uh, the building was closed, locked. Now, this is a long time ago. This is um, spring of 1961, and uh, it's before terrorism, before major anti-war demonstrations, before all the kinds of things that changed the environment. Um, and I was, I was kind of—I uh, had, had a driver's license, and I, I had a, access to a car, but I didn't uh, have any keys to the building. So we had driven over from high school, from where we lived in San Fernando Valley, and the building's locked and i'm i'm thinking well there ruins the entire day and vit looks up and sees that the second story window is open uh, <laughs> the um it's a casement window is it called it's a it's got a crank and yeah, uh, the right. window's open. and i'm looking up at that and and see what his reaction i'm thinking no we're not really going to do that are we the next thing i know he's on my shoulders um <laughs> literally and he, he crawls in and uh comes around and he opens the door. Now, these, the, the doors on this building are institutional doors. You know, they have the big, heavy bars, and, and you, you push it over. Well, we taped the door so that we could get in and out during the day and go off and get lunch and <laughs> so forth. I mean, there was nobody around. Inside, inside the building, it's all empty, and the corridor's are empty, and the doors to the individual offices are open. And we spend our day uh, working on the computer, and when we're done, we clean up and we, um, we go home. So I was 1961. <laughs> 11 years later, skipping over the period that we're actually going to cover in this, um, I am uh, now working for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. I've got a top secret clearance. Um, I am sporting very long hair and a beard, but I am a, a, a serious government employee. And uh, the news of the day is about how the. Um, uh, plainin guard at the watergate uh complex discovered that there was a door that was taped open gets suspicious, and uh, the Watergate burglars get arrested promptly and uh a little while later nixon uh, resigns it took a couple of years but uh, but anyway, on the day that that was discovered and in the re- and because of the reason it was discovered it was because the the door was taped the <laughs> shiver that went down my spine was. Something- <laughs>
0: That's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, several years after that, Vint and I were both back at UCLA for a celebration of our thesis advisor's um, birthday and retirement from the university. And uh, we heard that the building that we had um, broken into was scheduled for demolition. So we decided <laughs> that we would recreate the, uh, the incident. Uh, <laughs> That was a discussion that took place on a Friday afternoon. Saturday morning, it was scheduled to have all the graduates and we're going to have brunch with, um, with Estrin. So we said, well, we'll do that. We'll just show up a bit early. And one of our friends, who was another professor, uh, said he'd bring cameras. Uh, <laughs> and so, Vint and I and uh, our, friend, uh, our friend, Jerry Popek, showed up. And next thing I know, they, uh, we're standing there, and that window is still open. That same damn window is open, and, <laughs> and, and there wasn't any question about uh, who was going to do things. Vint is considerably more limber than I am, and he's, he's back on top of me and going through the window. <laughs> and buried, buried somewhere, we have some pictures of this, and uh, <laughs> we'll make available some suitable. Wow,
0: that's pretty crazy.
1: None of this has anything to do with the RFCs, but uh,
0: <laughs> no, but it's but it's still a cool history that happened it, at one point in all of this stuff.
1: It, it is. Um, I just think it's amazing that that um, two kids broke into a building to do computers. I mean, how often does that happen? Right?
0: Come on, Donald!
1: <laughs> I never <wrote> anything <laughs> to do anything to do to do work. <laughs>
0: It wasn't no, work then, it was cool because you were probably doing math homework for work and you were probably like, this is, this is a mental break. <laughs>
1: I, got, I got interviewed on uh, BBC once uh, and uh, the, um, the closing bit of the interview was uh, mentioned about Woodstock and, you know, why weren't, why weren't we at Woodstock? It was the same time period <laughs> we were working on, and, and my closing line was, you know, for us, uh, in those days, computers were the drug of choice. No,
0: no. <laughs> yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah. Um, that little incident in spring of 61, uh, Vint had graduated a couple months earlier, mid-year, in uh, the way they did it in, in high, Los Angeles. They had uh, graduated. You could either be on the regular year or, or half half a year off. He was half a year ahead of me. So he was, he was out of school, but he hadn't gone off to college yet. And uh, I was graduating uh, that June. Uh, he went off to Stanford, I went to UCLA. I guess I was already taking some courses at UCLA, overlapping with high school. And the, um, uh, we saw each other occasionally, but uh, uh, when he finished up in 65, he moved back to Los Angeles, worked for IBM for a while, um, I took my time getting through school, which is, means that I wasn't really in school permanently. Um, I was in and out of school, spending way too much time hanging around computers, programming, uh, and actually making a, a sort of a halfway decent living uh, as an undergraduate. I, not, I wasn't self-supporting quite, but I was um, learning my craft, as it were. I, I had decided that I really was fascinated with trying to understand uh, how the human mind worked and wanted to come at that from a, a artificial intelligence point of view. Um, I looked around and, and visited a bunch of schools and talked to people and read some stuff and wound up going to MIT um, in early 1967. Uh, Vint had started a graduate school at UCLA, and so I was sort of had introduced him to Jerry Estren, who I'd been working for as an undergraduate, and um, and then I went off to MIT. A year and a half later, I wanted to uh, uh, replenish my depleted uh, finances. I was looking around for a good summer job. Was talking to Vint, and we the short story is arranged a, a decent um, summer position for me coming uh, to back to Los Angeles just for the summer. Uh, to work in the group that he was part of uh, working for Estrin and, and working with Mint. And, and just to jump ahead a little bit, at the end of the summer, I decided I wasn't comfortable at at MIT and it uh, took me a couple of days to get used to the idea that I was going to give up the great prestige of MIT, but uh, I, I wound up transferring back to UCLA. So that summer, which was supposed to be just uh, temporary, uh, turned out to be a permanent change for me. And in the, um, it turned out to be at the exact same moment that the ARPANET project was getting started. Um, it had not yet impinged on me or, or Vint or, you know, many other people, but the, the, the plan was in, uh, was gearing up, and, and it was a very interesting and somewhat peculiar plan it had in in, in some sense two, most, la- two layers to it
0: most things related to the internet are interesting and peculiar
1: well that's that's true um, <laughs> that, that's true and uh, I think that even if you tried to list them all you would only have a starting set <laughs> The, um, but the, the, uh, the, the thing that I'm pointing to here is that some serious money was being spent, but most of the money that was being spent explicitly for the network was for what I'll call the lower part of it, which is um, a contract with Bolt brannick and Newman to design the routers. They were called IMPs in those days, Interface Message Processors. Um, But the the placement of these imps was going to be at existing research sites. So um, ARPA had a whole set of uh, advanced research, advanced computer science research uh, programs. And um, I hadn't really been paying a lot of attention and and wasn't really aware of who was funding what. But as it turned out, both the MIT. AI lab where i have been and, and the project that I was at, UCLA and a bunch of other interesting places were all funded by this one office uh, within within ARPA. And I say ARPA because the agency was created in 1958 in response to Sputnik, and it was nestled within the Office of Secretary of Defense in the U.S. Um, and it was just called the Advanced Research Projects Agency. A few years later, well, several years later, in in 1972, uh, I happened to be working there, so I, I was present for this uh, very, very minor little bureaucratic uh, detail. But uh, they they extricated this 150 person agency out from the uh, from within the Office of Secretary of Defense. You might think the Office of Secretary of Defense is just three people. The the, the secretary of defense and his secretary, so to speak, or a few other people around there. No, it's more like two thousand people, and it's got all sorts of stuff there. Anyway, they took this hundred and fifty-person agency and they just moved it out of the office of secretary of defense and created and made it a defense agency. Well, you have to be a bureaucrat or a, a you know a lover of this kind of detail for this to mean anything. But the in the process, it acquired this. Um, Extra letter uh, and became the Defense Advanced Research yeah, Program. Right,
0: DARPA, yeah, right, that's right.
1: And it, it made um, essentially no change at all to uh, what its mission or its base of operation, you know, mode of operation or anything. Um, the director called us all together to explain what was happening and he, and he said, now I can sign my own travel orders, basically, and uh, like that. Um, well, so they had a plan to to build this network and to and to build not only the parts of it, the, the imps and so forth, but to actually uh, create a, a running network by placing these imps at these existing research places. And so you had MIT and you had Carnegie Mellon University and, and University of California, Berkeley, and Stanford University and, and um, uh, UCLA and Santa Barbara and Utah and, and several other places. And they said well, we'll put these imps down uh, at these places where we're already supporting uh, computer science research. And here's the uh, the part that is really peculiar: they didn't say what we were going to do with it. They didn't say what the plan was. They didn't uh, have a uh, any kind of um, uh, top down. You know, uh, here's the objectives, and we got to hire people to do this, and you know, here's the tests we're going to run or anything. They had to have a very uh, very detailed plan about. Uh, designing these amps and getting them built and getting them delivered, but the uh, the superstructure on top of that—what are we going to do with it? Was left to our own invention, so to speak. And uh, so, during that summer of 1968, uh, the first four sites were uh, UCLA. UCLA happened to be not only one of the first four, but but numbered number one, and it was the first place to get an amp and uh, SRI up in Menlo Park uh, was yeah. the second one, and Santa Barbara University of California, Santa Barbara was the third, and University of Utah in Salt Lake City was the fourth. And a meeting was um, called to, for people from these four sites to come together. It was held at Santa Barbara, but it was chaired by uh, Elmer Shapiro from uh, SRI. Um, and as it happened, Vint and I attended on behalf of UCLA, and people like us, that is not the heads of these projects, but graduate students or comparable staff members, um, you know, sort of second tier within these uh, research projects, all showed up and nowhere, we get to meet each other around a table. Um, <coughs> and it was pretty, pretty cool meeting because we could tell right away that uh, each of us had kind of the same questions and started thinking about the problem in similar ways. Now, what was the problem? The problem was uh, to actually try to figure out what the problem was. We, we, <laughs> we, In very simple terms, you want to connect these computers together, but the trouble starts right away. What do, you, what do you want to do? You could obviously treat each computer as if it's a terminal on some other computer and just, you know, a sort of a replacement for a dial-up. Um, and I think we had two reactions. One is, yes, of course you have to do that. And the other is, and surely that's not all you want to do. And if that's all you're thinking about, that's pretty uh, pretty tame and mundane when we've got all these fancy computers and we're doing advanced research on, on things. And um, there must be a lot more interesting things to do. So you don't want to just think of it in the pedestrian sense of of a, a, like a dial-up service. And we also knew we'd wanna be able to move a file from one place to another. But again, um, as obvious and as necessary as that was, you surely wouldn't want to limit your thinking uh, along those lines. And we, you know, One of the advantages or features of the fact that we were in our various research environments is that each of the research projects was doing something interesting and pushing the envelope uh, somewhere. So at SRI, for example, you had the uh, so-called online system that Doug Engelbart was pushing. He had already invented a mouse, um, built an interactive system with hypertext and um, displays and everything. Uh, and actually, that fall uh, gave a very uh, uh, important demonstration in a big public meeting that became known afterwards, colloquially, as the mother of all demos. And uh, the 50th anniversary <laughs> of that was coming up. And at Santa Barbara, the color-freed system was a, um, uh, a rather exotic kind of desk calculator where you'd push a button and it would cause uh, two two values to be, uh, you know, joined together, except that instead of being ordinary scalars and you add them, these were vectors of 128 numbers and you might do vector addition or you might uh, do more complex signal processing um, and it very and, and in fact, they were not only uh, vectors and numbers, but they the numbers could, uh, could just as well be uh, complex numbers instead of just reals. Uh, so you could do some very interesting calculations with just a few button pushes, and they had a huge array of buttons, uh, more than you might guess. Um, and, and the graphics displays deal with that. So, those are just two examples. And all around the community, there were different kinds of things. You had Multics uh, at MIT, you had the artificial intelligence activities at the various sites, and uh, uh, fancy graphics at, at Utah. So, we, we were um, part of, or, or sort of uh, the, the academic word informed, uh, these things uh, affected our thinking. In ways that, if we had simply been trying to build say like a commercial system and a basic interactive time sharing system uh, on a grand scale, we would have come at it very differently um, so around this table in um, in august of sixty eight uh, we could sort of tell that um, uh, we were th- each of us was thinking along related lines and it would be fun to keep talking to each other um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's always a dangerous place to start. We should keep you, talking. You,
1: you, you've got it. Um, <laughs> and, and it gets better because um, we decided that what we ought to do is visit each other's laboratories and uh, as, as part of having a continuing conversation. And we recognized instantaneously the irony that, um, uh, this network was supposed to make it possible to collaborate at a distance and reduce your travel and the first thing we did was schedule a series of trips
0: <laughs> well networking hasn't changed much in the last 50 years <laughs>
1: <laughs> no we, we we laid down the outlines of everything that was to follow in the first five minutes um, <laughs> And, and, and it, as it turned out, uh, in my case, my travel—I uh, sort of plunged right into it, and, and I did enough travel that uh, my boss, uh, Len Kleinrock, took over the contract, and, and he had to go ask for more money. And there's a you know, in the files, there's a contract modification for for just my travel. It was eighty thousand dollars to support thirty-two months of of estimated thirty-two months of my travel. It was. Uh, uh, my first grant, if you will <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> we we um, w- w- another interesting thing is that, as I said, this was a blank sheet, no direction um, sort of figure it out and and um, and we let ourselves uh try to think fairly large, uh, think, think boldly and grandly, because we could imagine applications where you might want more than one computer working on the same problem. Uh, you might want uh, an Iliac 4 supercomputer, so to speak, of the day, uh, interacting with another machine that had a large database and interacting with yet another machine that could do fancy graphics and so forth. Um, So we wanted a high degree of generality, and we wanted to leave it open for people to do things. One of the more interesting ideas was this. um, And and the guys at SRI, Jeff Rulison and and the others uh, pushed on this. Um, These lines that were connecting the imps were 50 kilobits. Um, (laughs) That seems pretty tame by today, but that was really fast. Uh, I mean, we were living with. Uh, 300 baud uh, dial-up lines.
0: Um. Yeah, this is before 192. This is before 12.4. This is before 9.6. Yeah,
1: this is
0: this is really a long time ago.
1: Yeah, if, if you're going to say 9.6, then this was dot .3.
0: Yeah, dot .3. That's this right.
1: Yeah. Dot three, which translates into 30 characters per second. Um, and. Uh, not, not kilocaracters, not kilobits, not any, Just 30 characters a second. Um, so 50 kilobits uh, was very fast, but on the other hand, it was also clear 50 kilobits is slow compared to local uh, uh, compute times or transmission times between um, uh, devices in the same room and so forth. So we, um, we thought about the following. You might wanna have an interactive session But if you could move as much of the interaction as you could into a local environment so that you didn't have to have uh, individual characters, say, going back and forth over the network um, or uh, speed up that in any way that you could, that might be helpful. So we imagined uh, that one of the possibilities is that you might have a very simple uh, language that uh, everybody could implement, a little interpretive language. We were... Uh, all, all of us knew the basics of compilers and interpreters and, and uh, system software and so forth. So we could we could sort of imagine that you can do this. Define a little language, uh, lay out how you would implement it on each of the machines. And then at the beginning of a session, um, the uh, remote program would send down a uh, some local code that you would interpret. Now that idea... Uh, we sketched it out, actually, in, in the early days, but it didn't actually come into service until much, much later with ActiveX and then Java. And and now it's quite common. You have apps and you have other things where you download um, with the interactive front end. But, but even at the very beginning, we could sort of see um, the potential for that. So we had these inter- – we had uh, intermittent meetings over several months, uh, starting with that meeting in August and then continuing in the fall. And uh, uh, at the time we started meeting, the design of the network was relatively clear from the point of view that there were going to be these imps and there were going to be 50 kilobit lines, but both Brannock and Newman had not yet been selected. It was, uh, there was a competitive procurement underway. They won that competitive procurement and uh, began work in January of 69 um, and, but prior to them being chosen and beginning to work, we didn't have any details about what message formats were going to look like or what the interfaces were going to be between our computers and the imps and so forth. So we were only thinking about the larger picture, about the hot, what you now think of as higher order protocols and applications uh, without drilling down into the uh, uh, basic transport layer. Um, and there wasn't any IP layer because it was just one network. and. IP emergency.
0: Really, yeah, I mean, transport was typically point to point. You weren't, I mean, even these imps weren't thinking, you weren't thinking at that time about transit, right? Pretty much. I think that was the goal behind the imps, but that wasn't like top of mind for a lot of people, or it was kind of a radical idea.
1: Well, from, from point of view of, the, of those working on the host, you, you, a host would send a message into an imp, and it would show up and, and you put an address on it as to where it's going to go, and it would show up at the other posts that you sent it to. Um, so the entire suite of, uh, of IMPs working together uh, basically formed a unitary system. Uh, at least that was the, um, the basic plan. Uh, so then we had to, you know, as I say, our, our first thoughts were at the higher levels because we didn't have any details to work with. Uh, the, at the lower end. We had, a, we had a, some rough ideas, but not, uh, we had a rough sketch of what it was gonna look like, but we didn't have the fine level details. So we couldn't, we couldn't write any code. We couldn't uh, uh, nail down what the uh, uh, message formats and, and de- were gonna look like. Uh, when Bo Brannock and Newman got selected, we met with them uh, a few weeks after they started in a snowy day in February in, in Cambridge. That was pretty interesting because they were a well organized team um, you know they they came to work every day, knew each other very well, small team and 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 quite competent and We were uh, an intermittent set of graduate students talking to each other uh, and we didn't have any tools to talk with each other because there wasn't any yeah. network right we, we could yeah. we a telephone yeah. and we could have, uh, we could write documents and send them by postal mail if we wanted to. <laughs>
0: You, can, you couldn't do a Zoom meeting.
1: I'm sure telephone calls were quite expensive at that time. Yeah, I'm sure they were. Yeah, um, that's right. Long distance calls were charged separately and um, yeah, all of that. So in March, we're sitting around a table in Utah and um, realized that the set of ideas that we'd been talking about over the several month period had reached a point that we really shouldn't start writing them down. We hadn't really written anything. And we 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 dealt out uh, writing assignments um, basically you've been talking about this, why don't you write that up and you've been talking about that, so why don't you write that up and so forth? We, we all took an assignment I took one <coughs> and um and then there was a small additional chore of, of organizing these notes, and i uh, foolishly um said well i'll I'll take that too uh, <laughs> And you
0: were even in the room. Normally, the rule is whoever's not in the room gets the hardest job.
1: <laughs> exactly so. Well, um, you know, there's there's this phrase about being present or in the moment, right? <laughs> and even though I was in the room, it was clear afterwards that I didn't really understand what I had taken on. So maybe I wasn't there in and, a and sense. <laughs> Uh, I think we've all had those moments. I think we have. <laughs> well, it gets worse. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't have much trouble writing up the technical stuff that I had agreed to write. Which, uh, but this, this clerical task, which I thought was trivial, caused me quite a bit of pause because every time that I sat down and said, well, I'll just write a little cover note on these, on these notes, uh, I, I got really quite anxious, uh, fearful. Uh, and I could tell what was going on. I, I, I had a trepidation that the appearance of these notes was going to cause some sort of backlash, that uh, somebody important, some adult, would come, <laughs> and, and they'd come from the East. Uh, I didn't know whether it was going to be Washington or Boston, but, you know, my image was that some adult was going to arrive from the East and was going to challenge us and say, you uh, what do you guys think you're doing? Who put you in charge? Uh, Um, What's that?
0: We're still waiting, aren't we, Donald? Yeah, I was kind of curious. Is that why you moved to Maryland? (laughs) He wanted to be one of the adults.
1: (laughs) Still seeking authority. (laughs) Well, so one night when I was actually staying with friends and it was uh I couldn't sleep this thing was on my mind and uh, I had to go somewhere where I wouldn't wake up any of the people in the house so I was wound up standing up in the bathroom uh, scribbling at three am um, and uh, I said look these notes aren't aren't real they aren't they don't mean anything they're not official uh they don't have to be polished. And I also was uh, concerned that they might be feel like an inhibition. I really wanted people to feel free to write whatever they wanted. So I said, you know, you, don't, you can write questions without answers, and you can write, uh, um, you know, a, a design without the details of it or whatever. And, um, and then um, I grabbed hold of this phrase, which for all these years I thought – It came out of my head, but recently Bill Duvall said, uh, and he was one of the SRI guys, he said, you know, I I actually was the one who suggested it. And and I have no interest in arguing about it because um, it could well be. The phrase obviously made an impression on me whether I thought about it or whether he thought about it. And I said, "Uh, here's what we'll do. We'll say that every one of these, no matter what it is, no matter how formal it looks or doesn't look, uh, we'll just call it a request for comments as a... uh, as a device you know as a a,
0: right because it makes it less formal sounding It makes it more like we're actually inviting you in you people from the east with authority to to tell us if we're doing something wrong if we are exactly so
1: exactly so and uh, you know i thought okay so this is a temporary hack this is uh, six months and we'll have some formal documentation for the network Mm -hmm. somebody will write it um and yeah, I'd never imagined that that sequence would go on indefinitely. Uh, we wrote an index of the first 100, and I was surprised, and I was invited to do, write some words uh, when RFC 1000 came out. And it felt like sources, apprentice, there's just no way to cut it off. Um, and, you know, and they were very humble things in those days, and including uh, the list of people to send them to uh, we wrote down and sent that around as a request for comments. I mean, the first thing you do when you're a computer <laughs> scientist, you build some machinery and then you use that to uh, bootstrap yourself. So, uh, so so what are we
0: going to do when we hit 10,000? I'm just curious.
1: Well, Are we going to have a celebration a very, or a wait? I haven't, a, I, I, I haven't <laughs> thought about it, but I'll, I'll say a couple of words uh, heading in that direction. Um, <laughs> These early RFCs, as I, as I said, we had no other mechanism. So anything we wanted to say, we said that way. Uh, quite obviously, these days, you have uh, at least two other levels of communication. You have email, and you have now internet drafts uh, many years ago where it started. So by the time things are put together into an RFC these days, uh, that's a process that represents a very large number of communications that, um, and I don't know what the exact compression ratio would be, but it's got to be somewhere between a hundred and a thousand to one. Uh, that is, uh, to say that very explicitly, uh, one RFC today was probably, is probably equivalent to what would have taken a hundred maybe or so RFCs. Nobody would have written that many because you just, you wouldn't write them as easily as you write emails, but a very large number of uh, ancient RFCs uh, to be equivalent to, to to one of today's RFCs. So the idea of hitting ten thousand is certainly a major milestone, but uh, the, the milestone of ten thousand today has got to be easily a hundred thousand of uh, ancient. RFC. Of ancient
0: ones, yeah. I, I, do know, I do note this, that when you go back in the history, even some, even though some of the older ones are not like well-preserved, as they say, you know, you read on the site and it says not well-preserved or whatever, they tended to be very short and compact and um, just covered a much narrower space than what we have today. Today we have RFCs that are hundreds of pages long. And, you know, they're small books or large research papers or something like that. This seems kind of strange.
1: Yes. Well, um, one can have various feelings about that, right? Um, yeah, no. It, so there's been some serious shifts. And, uh, um, you know, the fact that they still exist is something that uh, I find um, at least interesting, if not amazing. Um, and then uh, some years ago, the term RFC got put into the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, <laughs> So you got to understand that I started out to do artificial intelligence. I spent some time uh, formal methods, proof of proof of programs, and so forth. And I viewed this summer project of trying to get this uh, these protocols defined as a, a useful but not really deep research project from my perspective. I used to sneer that uh, uh, the network was had only socially redeeming features. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> now I'm not sure it does.
1: <laughs> well and, and and that's a that's that's right too. Somebody <laughs> maybe lost that. But in the, but it's it's certainly grabbed hold of a very large fraction of my life. And uh within the this networking business, which as I say was a major distraction from what I really set out to do, the um, primary thing that I'm going to be known for is this small clerical contribution of creating <laughs> creating this uh, request for comment series
0: <laughs> so what else have you done besides create the request for comment series let me tell you
1: about my grandchildren <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, i'm sure there's more that you've done than have grandkids and uh and do requests for comments <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's not small. I mean, it's been a building block of the entire computer yeah, okay. society. So you've got to look at it from that perspective, right? I, that I, it's it I, allowed us to to do what we do. I, I I am actually quite proud of it and quite pleased, and uh, and and I do uh, I don't have any hesitation about recognizing the importance. Uh, and and it isn't just. Um, a particular thing that I did or a a small invention. It also is reflective of an environment of the time that uh, represent a huge degree of cooperation as opposed to competition. Uh, We weren't building commercial products. We weren't trying to compete with each other for uh, uh, control of the intellectual property or of uh, uh, the finances or anything. We're all being financed from the same uh, source. And it was natural, uh, it wouldn't make a big deal of it, but it was very natural for everything to be open. And nowadays when I talk about the openness, there are really three different elements that came together. Uh, These meetings that we had, which started out with just the representatives in these first sites, grew over a short period of time with other people showing up because they were going to be connected or they were interested in uh, my goodness! All of a sudden, they got to be unwieldy, like fifty people, and uh, we couldn't hold them all in one room. and And I remember we had to divide up into two parallel sessions, um, and uh, the logistical nightmares of doing. It. And we couldn't meet at a university anymore; we had to go rent hotel space and and stuff like that. Um, so, but but the ethic of uh, open participation was, uh, as I say. Very natural. And and nobody thought about trying to collect money from anybody or, or put any rules in about who could come or anything. It was just um, just there. Uh, and the uh, complimentary side of that is all of the documentation was free to anybody, anywhere, anytime. Uh, no questions asked.
0: I think, I think there are two things about that that are really important. The first is the humility of the request for comment concept, right? It's like, you're really not originally and still today to some degree anyway, even though it's kind of morphed in its, in its meaning, you know, in more recent years. Uh, it, it's not really trying to tell people what to do so much as it's just out there providing standards for people who are working in the space.
1: Well, so that's, that's right. That, that, that is right. Sorry, I cut you off
0: no it's fine and so and so and i think the other thing of the documentation being open a lot of people don't realize that there are very few iso docs and very few ieee docs and acm and you know uh, asme and everything else that are available freely that if you want to go build something you've got to go pay a lot of money to get a doc that you can work from to build it that's
1: right that's right um One of the things that we had to deal with uh, relatively early was one of the organizations, um, one of of the people participating from, I said he he couldn't write one of these because it would have to go through a publication process, a publication review process. And I I remember thinking, Oh, I know what to do about that. These are not publications. I said, yeah. And um, uh, so he took that to his management and they said, Oh, okay. And, uh, and that was the end of it. Now, later, I hear that some judge somewhere said, well, these aren't uh, real because they're a request for comments, so they're not standards, and uh, just sort of let them struggle with that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because that carries into today. When you go to the ITF, you are contributing as an individual, and a lot of people get wrapped around the axle that you're representing a company, and you're not. I mean, technically, you work for a company, the company might pay your way. But by official rules, you're actually not doing publications. You're participating in a process as an individual. And so, you know, there's an ethos that came out of that as well that's pretty interesting.
1: Exactly so. Now, um, 1994, I went to India for the first time and uh, gave a talk at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. And I was introduced to a graduate student who had built some amazing software, lots of stuff uh, put in there. And I said, well, how'd you, how'd you learn to do all this? And he said, well, I just downloaded the RFCs and I read them. And it, it, it caused me to choke up uh, uh, the amazing power of just making all that available. And then people do uh, what they want and they can, they can think of things. So those are two of the three elements of openness that I that I talk about. The openness of uh, participation and the openness of the, the documentation, and the third is is the technical aspect, which was the layers of architecture uh, are open in the sense that, um, and I don't know how often any of us actually think through this, but certainly I and I think I think those of us that were working on it thought of these protocol layers as um, uh, Available if you want to use them, but not a requirement. Uh, That they were like, you know, library that you could call on if you wanted to. And that we wanted these layers to be very thin, and we wanted people to add to them. You could add on top of them. You could uh, go around them. You could put things in between if you wanted to. You could modify them, whatever. And so the architecture was open. And... um, And that's sort of counter to the way a product oriented operation would go where you might have um, a layered uh, structure inside of a product because that's helpful for you to maintain it and manage it and build it and so forth. But you'd close up the surface and you'd present a particular API or a particular user interface. Uh, We didn't do that. Um, And that remains today uh, a critical thing. Some of the protocols... Um, could have been built better as platforms, I mean, to provide a platform you build on. So for example, if you want to build something where you use mail as a transport protocol, and I've done this, um, it's an ugly business because mail was not engineered properly for that purpose. Uh, But in general, uh, that was the kind of idea that we had in mind and that uh, uh, there was no top of the stack. And (laughs) <laughs> and there wasn't any well-defined set of layers. Uh, I, I worked on this for a few years. And then um, I, went to, I, got, I got invited to go actually work at ARPA as a program manager, and I went there in 71. And I used that point to make a personal decision to turn away from networking and focus back on artificial intelligence. And uh, while I was at ARPA, I spent most of my time running the AI and speech understanding and related portfolios. And then when I finished there, I came back to Los Angeles, and uh, I had not yet finished uh, my PhD dissertation, and I had very purposefully decided I did not want to write up the the work I'd done on the uh, design of the original protocols because uh, it violated my sense of identity. It was a very foolish decision. If I were supervising somebody as obstinate and as misdirected as I was. I mean, uh had some hard words with him, but, but Jerry Estrin was very tolerant, and uh, he, he read me correctly that I was going to do what I wanted to do, and his job was to be supportive. So I, I did work in formal, formal methods and, and so forth, but when I turned my attention back to networking, uh, all of a sudden I heard that there were exactly seven layers Uh, these good folks uh, working OSI had had worked it out and that they had a name for each of these layers it was it was a debilitating experience because I was on the floor laughing I mean I was I I genuinely was astonished Uh,
0: and we remain so today for anybody who watches or reads anything I write about the OSI model that's pretty funny
1: now you know, I, I, I shouldn't be quite so dismissive. They, they had serious ideas in mind and they were trying hard. And people find, uh, you know, words like layer two and layer three to be meaningful and so forth. But if you look inside, for real, if you look inside the application layer, so to speak, you'll see many, many, many layers of stuff just inside there. And then you wind up with, you know, like I'm listening to current discussions of DNS over HTTP. Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> Explain layer violation to me.
0: <laughs> Network address. Pat. Actually, this is why everybody fusses about port address translations, because of layer violations. <laughs> if the layers weren't violated, Pats wouldn't really matter all that much most of the time. Right. But that's what we do. We violate layers. We stick IP addresses in the middle of packet, in the middle of data, in the data section of the packet. And we go, oh, wait, you've changed my IP address. That's bad.
1: Ooh. Well, I have to say that among the mistakes that we made in the early protocols, transporting addresses as data made it um, set us up for making it impossible to do a smooth transition from IPv4 to IPv6. And uh, 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 looking back, um, I'm quite embarrassed about that, and the cost has been enormous. Um, and And it started right out with uh, the design of the file transfer protocol where um, the, uh, the the transport I think took place over a different socket and you trans you communicated the name of that socket or the the address of that socket uh, as a piece of datum um, terrible terrible we, and we were, we should have known better I mean we knew what objects were, and this was sort of basic stuff we should have um, Encoded it in a way that anticipated that it might have to change. Never mind. Um, anyway, that's the basic story of the start of the RFCs. That's I, really
0: that's actually really cool. That is actually really cool.
1: So, I made it, I made a point of saying you had to write it before I'd give you a number. I wanted I didn't want a lot of holes in the sequence.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's no, that's really that's really that's really cool. That's a really neat story. So we're at actually fifty two minutes or a little bit more. I don't know. My counter could be off, so I think we've covered our time. Steve, it's great having you on. Um, there are other stories I'm certain you can tell. So maybe we'll have you back on in the future when you don't look like um, no. Just kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to have a cast made so that I can put this on so that there's.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. But yeah, thanks for coming on. And um, Steve, can anybody find you any place? Like, do you blog, or are you out there writing any place, or any podcast, or anything? I guess you're probably on LinkedIn, Facebook, maybe. I don't know what.
1: Maybe. Well, I am on Facebook. I am on LinkedIn. I don't broadcast a lot. I don't do podcasts. and I don't uh, tweet. Um, I do have a, a Twitter account, but I hardly ever use it. Uh, I am doing a bit of a writing after my um, own heart. <laughs> on some of the history stuff, like like this, and some other aspects, uh, but slowly, some stuff will come out, uh, dribble over the next. Uh,
0: well, you should send us those links when you do them, and we'll we'll cross post them somehow, um, because that would be really cool to see that information come out. Because um, of course we have this series ongoing, and so that would meld or, or you know work in with this really well to just yep. have that material.
1: Be glad to do that, and uh, I may even send you a draft, not for publication, but just to comment on if you want to. Yeah, that's
0: cool. That's fine. Right. And Donald, where are you? E Maybe. sharp no. What is it? Sharp D. Start sharp D. Yeah,
1: that's that's actually my email name. Um, I'm a um me not you sharp on Twitter. That's
0: what I was trying to think of. Me not you sharp at Twitter. Yeah, that's really cool. That's so you don't blog either. No. I, I ask him this every show. and he always <laughs> says no. <laughs>
1: What are you going do when I say yes?
0: <laughs> I'm going to ask you for the blog address. <laughs> uh,
1: until, until, until a few months ago, I was uh, heavily involved at ICANN uh, on the board. And then for the last uh, six or so years, I was uh, chairman of the board. And uh, I had to be careful about what I said in public. And I wrote occasionally some, some columns. Uh, but uh, I was always conscious that uh, if I was trying to – speak on my, own, on my own accord or just you know as an individual that that wasn't going to work everybody would say oh you must be speaking officially so i had to be yeah, yeah. careful about all that
0: yeah that's actually a struggle and i when i blog it's a struggle for me too yeah. i actually have to work with companies that i work for to make sure that there's a clear differentiation between my iatf persona my writing persona history of networking network collective you know that these are all different things and so that's cool
1: well, thank you very much for inviting me. And oh, thank uh, you for coming uh, on. Keep, keep up real, the good work. Uh, thank fun, you. Fun talking with you. Yeah, thanks yep. for coming on.